Welcome to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta, where we are committed to changing lives with faith, hope, and love. We're so glad you are here. Our second reading is from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. Listen again for the word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the swords. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You've heard it said, God won't give you more than you can handle. Maybe you've received this advice. Maybe you've given it to someone else and it's well-meaning advice. God won't give you more than you can handle. It sounds good. 
but is it true? The prophet Elijah doesn't think it's true. Our Old Testament reading today is from 1 Kings chapter 19. Here we meet Elijah in his moment of deepest despair. In fact, we meet him lying in the desert praying for death. But how did the prophet Elijah get here? How did one of the greatest prophets in all of Israel's history get here? Elijah had served as a prophet for only a few years, and in those few years, he had worked stunning miracles. Elijah has shown power to, over the weather, he holds back a storm, he multiplies food to feed a widow and her son, and he brings a boy back to life. Now, you might have thought only Jesus did these things, but Elijah did them too. In fact, Elijah's miracles prepare the way for Jesus so that when Jesus shows up and calms the storms and feeds the multitudes and calls his friend Lazarus back from the tomb, the Jewish people who witnessed these miracles connected them to the work and to the power of Elijah. This brings us back to our question, how did Elijah get here, lying in the desert praying for death? Elijah's calling as a prophet and the beginning of his troubles all start with a king named Ahab. King Ahab ruled Israel in the 9th century BC. He was one of several kings who reigned in the 9th century BC because it was not the most stable chapter in Israel's history. When Ahab came to power, he wanted to stop that turnover. He set out to forge new political alliances. And one way to do that in the ancient world was through arranged marriage. So Ahab found himself a princess to marry. She wasn't from Israel. She was from a big city up north. And the people from up north were a little different from the people down south. They talked different. They ate different foods. I have a friend from New York City who goes on and on about locks. Not sure what that is. They followed different customs. They worshiped different gods. And this princess was devoted to her faith. She brought her religion with her. And that princess's name was Jezebel. Jezebel becomes queen and she convinces her new husband to let her set up temples to her God all over Israel. Downtown Atlanta, operates under the watchful eye of the Coca-Cola headquarters building. Some of you know that building. Some of you have been in the building. When I was a student at Georgia Tech, that building hovered over the south side of campus. It was the south point of my compass to help me navigate where I was going. Coca-Cola was a ubiquitous presence. Even in the student food court where we had a Pizza Hut, and back then Pizza Hut only served Pepsi products, but not at Georgia Tech, we had a Pizza Hut with Coca-Cola. It was the only Pizza Hut, as I understand it, in the whole country that served Coca-Cola products because Pepsi wasn't welcome in the birthplace of Coca-Cola. And then one night, one night I met friends for dinner at a Mexican restaurant about 10 minutes away from campus, and as I turned a corner, I saw an abomination tucked away in a shadowy little office park as if it was in hiding, and it should have been, was a Pepsi building. 
in the city of Coca-Cola. It was unsettling to see the Pepsi building there, and it's still there. But it was far more unsettling for Elijah to see all those temples to Jezebel's God, a deity named Baal. All those temples to Baal in God's promised land. Now this comes to a head in 1 Kings chapter 18, just before our reading today. We learn that Elijah challenges the priest of Baal to a contest to decide whose God is greater. And you've heard of a dance-off? This is a sacrifice-off. Everyone gathers at the top of Mount Carmel. They build two altars. They slay two bulls. The priests of Baal pray to their deity to, to make fire fall from heaven and consume their sacrifice. And they pray and they pray and they pray and they pray, but nothing happens. And in fact, Elijah starts trash-talking the other priest. And it's very funny. You should read that story yourself later. When nothing happens after hours of this, Elijah steps forward for his turn. Elijah prays to his God. And fire falls from heaven and consumes not just the sacrifice, but even the stones of the altar. Point for Elijah's God. The people who witness this miracle reject Baal and turn back to God. And not only that, they chase down all those priests and kill them. Now, we don't have time to unpack the, um, the implications of religious genocide in the ancient world. But I want to acknowledge that in this moment, Elijah has reached the height of his success and of his power as a prophet. It is a mountaintop experience in many senses of the word. And then Jezebel finds out what he did. And she vows to hunt Elijah down and kill him too. So Elijah flees. He flees all the way south to a city called, or a town called Beersheba. This is a frontier town on the edge of civilization. There he leaves his servant and he continues into the wilderness where he collapses under a broom bush. How does Elijah get to this point? This is how he gets to this point. This is where we find him lying in the sand praying for death. Have you ever felt that low? Elijah has. And have you ever voiced it to God? Elijah did. God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we hope. God doesn't answer Elijah's prayer the way he hopes. Instead, God sends an angel with food and water who invites Elijah to eat. And I want you to know this is more than just a, a surprise of a meal. It's also a sign. It's a reminder to Elijah because who rains down food in the wilderness and brings forth water in the desert? God does. God provides in those desolate places. And certainly Elijah is in a desolate place physically and spiritually. With this reminder that God will provide what he needs, Elijah finds the strength to go on. 
He travels 40 more days through the wilderness to the mountain of God. Our text calls it Mount Horeb, but you might know it as Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments, as our children's director, Catherine, just told us. The same mountain. Now, the last time God came to this mountain, he descended in cloud and thunder and lightning, and the people were terrified. And we might be a little nervous, too, on behalf of Elijah. How is God going to show up? Elijah doesn't care. He's beyond caring if it's a little scary. He's not going to be intimidated by a little earthquake or a little thunder and lightning. He is so desperate to be in God's presence that he, he decides that he will be there and he will wait on the Lord. And so we read that a wind rips across the land, but God is not in the wind. The earth shakes, but God is not in the earthquake. A fire roars past, but God is not in the fire. Then Elijah hears the sound of sheer silence, or as some versions put it, a still small voice, a gentle whisper. And he recognizes the voice of his God. When we hear stories of the heroes of faith, they become larger than life in our imaginations. We start to believe that these people never falter. They don't get discouraged. They don't doubt themselves. They don't doubt God. But in this story, we see that Elijah does all those things. Elijah isn't the first prophet to despair either. Did you know that? He's not the first to hit rock bottom. Moses hits rock bottom too. Moses, who was called to lead the Israelites through this very same wilderness, Moses hits rock bottom. The people complain to Moses so much about how bad things are in the desert that Moses goes to God and says, if this is what you called me to, you might as well kill me now. I'm out. Jesus hit rock bottom as well. And we don't talk about that much in the church. Jesus hit rock bottom on the night of his arrest. We read in our scripture that he was deeply grieved even unto death. Those are very nice Bible words. The way I would translate this is that Jesus was overcome with sorrow so great that he wanted to curl up and die. Have you felt that way? In our New Testament reading, Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How can Jesus offer that? I think because he knows what it feels like. So in that gentle whisper, God asked Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah has an answer. It, it seems like he's been practicing it. I have been zealous for you, my Lord. The Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets, and I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. Just like before, God sees through his words to his meaning, to his desperation, to his despair. And did you notice how God responds? God doesn't thunder and roar. God doesn't yell at Elijah. God doesn't shame Elijah. God doesn't say, come on, Elijah. You know I wouldn't give you more than you can handle. God doesn't say, maybe, Elijah, if you prayed a little harder, 
if you had a little more faith. God doesn't say any of that to Elijah, and I believe God doesn't say that to us either. See, when we bring our deep despair to God, when we lay down the pretense that it's all under control, or that we were ever really in control, God says, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and struggling, and I will give you rest. And that is what God offers to Elijah. Not only rest, but a new purpose and a new hope. God says, I have a purpose for you. I want you to anoint a new king of Syria and a new king of Israel because I have chosen them to do my work. Look at this. In God's master plan, Elijah has a part to play, but the plan is bigger than Elijah. All he can see is I alone am left. And God says, no, no, no. I am at work already. I am gone ahead of you. I am already tearing down kingdoms and raising up new ones. So when we look around at our lives, we look around at our own country and we think, oh gosh, everything is going down the drain. When we worry about that, take heart because God's plan is far bigger than any one of us. Not only is God already at work, God says, I will give you help, Elijah. See, Elijah isn't the only faithful person left. And we knew that because I told you that the people had turned back to God. But now God says, go tap your successor. You are to find a person named Elisha. And before we get worried that God is actually pushing Elijah out, consider that this collapse happens a few years into Elijah's ministry, and he continues to serve as a prophet for decades later. How did he go on? He goes on with Elisha at his side. That is how God answers Elijah's despair. It's how God answered Moses' despair, too. When Moses said, this is too much. Take me now, Lord. God didn't say, Moses, come on. You know I only give you what you can handle. He doesn't say that. God doesn't question Moses' faithfulness or his prayer life. God says, go anoint elders to help you carry this burden. Don't do it all on your own. God consistently reminds us not to do it all on our own, and God calls us, in the face of despair, God calls us into community. So back to that phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle. It's not actually from the Bible. It's a riff off a verse that is in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. That is a quote that comes from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth the church at Corinth. In other words, God will not allow you all to be tempted beyond what you can bear. God will not allow you to be tempted to despair. All of you. It's not a promise made to a person. It's a promise made to a people. So go ahead. Carry your burdens to God. He is waiting to lift them from you. Have a complete meltdown before the Lord. You'd be in good company if you did. But know that when we despair, 
when we struggle under burdens that truly they're too great for us to bear alone, God reminds us we're not alone. We're not alone. God draws us back into community. If God can work with Moses with all of his flaws, and if God can work with Elijah with all of his limitations, just imagine how God can and will work with each of us. Alleluia. Amen. This podcast is a ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta. Come join us Sundays at 189 Church Street, Marietta, Georgia, or visit us online at fpcmarietta.org.